Are we having a good day? Okay, I'm going to do my best to not screw that up for you. <laughs> Let's hope we can keep that continuing. I know some of you walked in and saw all the notes for today and you instantly went, oh no, look at that word salad. So some of you get on your phones and cancel your lunch reservations. So <laughs> Not promising to say less, but I'll promise to talk really fast, okay? So we'll get you out of here. Uh, but there's a lot to say today simply because the passage that we're dealing with is one that I, that is really near and dear to me. And it brings up a topic that is a pretty tough topic, I think, for most of us. Because today we're going to talk a little bit about suffering, specifically suffering for doing good. And instantly when I think of pain and suffering, again, I go, oh, because that's something I've never liked dealing with in life. Uh, the passage that we're going to talk about here is, uh, it was too long to actually publish today, but it's in First Peter, the third chapter, and I'll just breeze through this quick. It says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while an ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not, a, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Whew. <laughs> you could not only write teachings, but entire books about that. And there's a lot of stuff there. And But one of the takeaways that I really appreciate about today's passage, one of the first things I discovered in there is something that I found revolutionary. And it's a simple concept that says pain is not 
optional. Now, if you're like me, I needed to be taught that because I didn't know that. I actually believed for a large part of my life that if I just managed well, if I navigated right, there should be a pain-free option through life. And if, if I hurt either in my body or in my soul, then I'm doing something wrong. So I really believe that if I just found that magic path through life, that it wouldn't be painful. And part of what it says is in suffering for doing wrong, I'm the problem prevention guy. I'd much rather help change your oil than help change your motor. <laughs> and that's why I understood the concept that problem prevention teaches us that if you do wrong things, there's consequences. But the whole concept of suffering for doing right, one of the first things that struck me is if, if I can't choose a pain-free option through life, then my, the best I can hope for is to pick my pain. And it says that it, it's better to suffer for doing right. But unfortunately, even if we do the right things, there is a price to be paid. And it was good to know that. It wasn't happy to find that out, but at least there was some comfort in knowing that my expectations were unrealistic, and now I can just set about to pick my pain. And that somehow made things sit a little better with me. And so as we're getting into this passage, I'm looking for an angle to come at this with this morning. And it's so easy to pull things out of the Bible and talk about the what. Here's what you do and here's what you don't do. And it's an easy talk to give, but... Again, if you're like me, it's sometimes what I need to hear isn't the what, but it's the how and the why. Okay, how do I do this? And even more important, why should I do this? If you're teaching me how to run a machine and you tell me don't turn that knob, I need to know why. Otherwise, I have to turn it myself <laughs> just to figure out why I'm not supposed to turn it. <laughs> So it's really helpful if you explain to me the why and the how. How am I supposed to do this? So instead of getting too much into these into this passage today and talking about, you know, what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do, what I really wanted to convey this morning is to get a little more into understanding the hows and whys of pain and suffering for a Christian. I've talked to countless people over the years that had issues with God. And almost universally, one of the biggest problems that people have is to find a place in their head where they can rectify the idea of a loving God on the one hand with human suffering on the other. How do you bring those two things together? And I hear it all the time, even from non-believers. Well, if God is so loving then why does all why are all these people hurting over here? And why does he allow evil? And why does he allow this? And I'm certainly not going to pretend to give you the answers in a few minutes and you're going to walk away enlightened, but hopefully what I'm what I do hope to do today is help us to have a little bigger place in our head to file some of this. To just go through some quick bullet points to look a little deeper into 
some of the ways that I have found personally to file some of this pain and suffering that we experience, not only in life, but especially as Christians. And the first thing that really helped me is to when they explained to me that most enemies are not bad, they're spiritually sick. Now, right there, it shocks me when we read this passage today because it tells me how to relate to my enemies. Well, if this is Christianity 101, shouldn't the first thing be, number one, don't have any enemies? (laughs) What's this business with the Bible telling me how to treat my enemies under the assumption I have them? Well, why do I have enemies? The answer is because Christ has enemies. And what we have to understand is that, first of all, The reason why a lot of people are opposed to us, it's not because they're bad, it's because they're spiritually sick. And its I think it's very natural to treat sick people different than bad people. Bad people need to be punished. Sick people need to be healed. And when I have this black and white thinking of seeing everybody who does harm in this world as just being bad, then what I'm hoping for is they all get spanked. That's what I want, and I think that's what they need. But when we get beyond that, we start to realize that people are born. Babies come into this world, batteries not included, spiritual batteries. We are born without spirit. We're alive body and soul, but we need God's spirit to be installed in us at one point in our life. And at that point, we become alive spiritually and we become Christians. There's only three states that people can be in. And every person on this planet is in one of three states. They're either saints, lost, or wicked. The lost are a lot of people out there. They just don't have their spiritual batteries installed. The saints are every person who allowed God to install his spirit into. Now, God's spirit is around us, and he can be on us, but we need his spirit in us. And the second that spirit enters us, we become a new creation. We become Christians. And as far as God goes, as far as God is concerned at that point, we become saints. In his eyes. There also is a class of people out there called the wicked. And instead of God's spirit, they invite spirits into themselves. And those people mean to be mean. They have intentionally chosen evil. And that's why I said most enemies are not bad. <laughs> Allowing for the wicked. And that isn't most of the people out there. But And it's not just your Jeffrey Dahmers and your Charles Mansons. But I think you'd, we would be amazed that some of the wicked people in our society might turn out to be the most respected leaders of various things. But they're following the wrong master. But sick people need to be healed. And the more that I can see most people that commit harms to me and others as spiritually sick, it's the easiest thing then to feel compassion and pity for the sick and to extend healing. If I'm working next to a guy and he's coughing and hacking, I don't like to be around sick people because I don't want to get sick. And if I have a pocket full of cough drops, why wouldn't I hand him a couple? <laughs> That's good for me because I don't want him to be sick. And if I can do something to help him get better, 
I'll naturally want to do that. So wouldn't we want to do the same thing in our society to heal the spiritually sick? Because the less spiritually sick they are, the easier they are to be around. I finally realized that I don't have a problem with people. I have a problem with people's defects of character. (laughs) To the degree that they manifest selfishness and self-centeredness and dishonesty and anger and and violence or manifest selfishness and self-centeredness or pride and ego, to that degree, I don't want to be around them. But those are symptoms of spiritual illness. And their hope is to introduce them to the same great physician that healed a lot of us. The second point is that it's not personal. It's Christ they have an issue with. See, one of the many tricks that our lying lower nature uses when we suffer pain is we always tend to take it personally, don't we? I remember a truck driver I met years ago, and he was a rather, what's the politically correct term, portly individual. Uh, he shopped in the husky section. I think it would be another way of saying it. What was the word Raleigh used? Thick. <laughs> he was just thick. <laughs> And so he had trouble reaching his shift lever in his truck that he drove, so he had an extension made to make it easier to to grab it. And one day he walks out to get in his truck, and somebody stole his custom shift lever. And he, he was enraged, but he said, it wasn't that they stole my shift lever. He said, what made me mad is they stole my shift lever. <laughs> How could they do that to me? Don't they know who I am? <laughs> and... I thought that was laugh out loud funny because that's how I think. Because I personalize everything. It's like everybody out there gets up in the morning and has a to-do list and there's only one thing on it. What to do today? Get Mark. <laughs> and that's what they set out to do. Man, i got to beat him out to the highway so I can drive 45 miles an hour and make him late for work. And then I have to go to the grocery store and make sure I get in line in front of him and use coupons. <laughs> Lots of coupons. <laughs> and, and, but I just think that, you know, they're out to get me. A very wise man taught me years ago, he's something that he learned. He said, I finally realized that they were not against me. They were just for themselves. And that made all the difference. Said it's not personal. People aren't thinking of me and how they're going to cause me pain when they make decisions. They're not thinking about me at all. They're just thinking of themselves. Uh, And that's why when we start to see people as being our enemies in this world, the game of life is not the world versus Mark. (laughs) It's not the world versus you. The game of life has always been good versus evil. That's the kingdoms in conflict, and we are just pawns in a bigger game. If you're in, if you're in the military and you go into battle and some enemy soldier has you in their sights, they're not looking through their scope at you and go, hey, it's that guy from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I don't like how he looks. <laughs> you know, it's not personal. He's shooting at you because of your uniform. It's what you represent. And in exactly the same way, the Bible tells us, like Christ said, remember when the world hates you, it hated me first. 
we're under attack because of what we represent. No different than if you walk into a biker bar wearing a patch of one gang and some other guy wearing a patch from a different gang, you know, wants to fight you. It's not often personal. He might not even know you but it's what you represent. Or if you go into the wrong neighborhood in the urban city and you're wearing the wrong colors. It's not personal. <laughs> I mean, it's what you represent. And exactly the same, even in our own homes and families and at work, when we take a strong stand for Christ, they, it's not that they don't like us anymore. They can't stand what we represent. But their real battle is with Christ and not us. Now, sometimes it is personal, (laughs) not going to lie to you, but a lot of times it's not personal, and somehow that really helps to remember that. The next point is that we all need to be part of the solution and not the problem. Part of what it talks about in the passage today is not to repay evil for evil, because two wrongs don't make a right. A while back in a teaching, we talked about that epiphany I had when my house got robbed, and I'm going down the list of all the ways to get even with these guys and hunt them down and inflict violent pain. And, you know, they stole money and a bottle of cheap champagne that was just for looks. I wasn't even going to drink it, you know, just sitting in a wine rack. I'm going to buy another bottle of champagne and fill it full of strychnine and set it in there, and I'll just find them out who they were in the obituary column and <laughs> track them down, that, let the coroner find them for me. <laughs> but I have this epiphany, that's the game. That's what he wants you to do. And I started to understand that if I do that, repay evil for evil, I look at the scoreboard and it's not a tie game. They got me, I got them back, one and one. It's two nothing. Because now I just put points on the wrong scoreboard. I got the ball and ran the wrong way down the field. (laughs) So how often do we shoot ourselves in the foot before the race even begins? How often do we surrender before the battle even starts? How often do we dump gas on a burning fire instead of putting it out? How often are we tempted at those times of pain and suffering to get turned around on that field and run the wrong way with the ball? So we have to remember to be part of the solution and not the problem. The next thing that this passage teaches us is the part of the why we do what we do as Christians is because we are all ministers. And the way that people should know that we're Christians isn't because we say so, but it's because they will know we are Christians through our love. And once we understand that we all have a greater mission in life, that should help because As we often say here at Hope Community Church, the ministers of Hope Church are not the guys that stand up here on Sunday morning. The ministers of this church are everybody in attendance. We are all ministers. We believe from the very foundations in this thing the Bible teaches called the priesthood of the believer. And what that means is every person in this room knows people that needs to know what we know. And you are all specially equipped in some way or another to carry and convey a message to these people. You can help people that I can't touch. 
And that's why the more we understand that the purpose of this ministry is not just information or education, but this is an equipping ministry. And part of it is not just to convey info, but it's to create opportunities for people to love and to help and to serve others. Because that's really what helps them, but it's also what helps us. So the reason why we need to rise to a higher standard, even when we're hurt, even when we're suffering for good, is to always remember that that we're here to help and serve others. That's part of our mission. You know, we all often talk about fair-weather friends, people that stick around until the going gets rough, until they ask you to move, <laughs> or things of that nature, and you find out who your really real friends are. But uh, Or fair-weather bikers, you know, oh, I see a cloud in the sky. Or, you know, that's not the real bikers, that's not the hardcores, or fair-weather campers of Terry and Tammy were here, they've sure seen their share, like, oh, we got to go home, I felt a raindrop. <laughs> but we don't want to be fair-weather Christians either. When the going gets tough, the tough don't get going, they hang right in there. So that's what we all need to do, and you know, to hang in there. Another one, and this is a biggie to me, is that we need to realize that pain is not punishment any more than prosperity is not reward. See, when we fall into that deceptive trap of believing that if we're in pain, we're doing something wrong. Conversely, if somebody is prospering, well, obviously they must be doing something right. I mean, that's how it works with God, right? Wrong. See, once I fall into that trap, I start to think that, you know, this pain is a measure of distance from God. And that nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, you know, the like charities came up with the term give till it hurts. Uh, gyms came up with the term uh, no pain, no gain. Well, we started to understand a while ago in our society that pain is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, pain can actually be a great thing. I've known people that were walking along and literally dropped dead because they had a terminal illness, but they'd had no pain. They were sick, but they didn't know they were sick. If they would have felt pain, they would have went to see a doctor. But their lack of pain was the very thing that made it worse. And in the same way, we, when we start, you see, we live in a society that has demonized pain. We have made pain an enemy unto itself. And we've been handed this bill of goods as a society that says, if you have any pain, physical pain, emotional pain, then there's something not wrong with you. They don't want to fix the problem. They just want to fix the pain. So they give us pain relief. And they want, they think if the pain goes away, then you're good to go, right? See, you see how backwards that is? Because we live in a fallen world. And if we don't hurt, there is something seriously wrong with us. 
If you can watch the news and not get headaches and heartaches, there is something wrong with us. We should be upset. We should be depressed at times. That's normal. And if a red light comes on on the dashboard of your car, you can fix it by taking a screwdriver and knocking the red light out. (laughs) But it doesn't make the problem go away. See, pain is a light on our dashboard that just makes us address where the real pain is coming from. And that's what the real problem is. It's not the red light. It's what went wrong under the hood. And that's what I love about Christianity is it's about fixing what went wrong under our hoods so we can help other people fix what went wrong under theirs. There's a reason why smoke detectors don't come with uh, snooze buttons. (laughs) You can take, you can get your smoke detector to stop making that annoying buzzing sound by taking the batteries out. You know, that's what my mom used to do. She didn't have a timer on her oven. She just cooked stuff until the smoke alarm went off and dinner's ready. (laughs) Doubled as a dinner bell. And then you'd take the batteries out and let's eat. So, but that's, uh, <laughs> this badge. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, but, but, but you see, and that's how pain is. Why did we buy that bill of goods, that lie of the world that says, oh, we're in pain, we're suffering, we must be doing something wrong? And you see, instead of really looking a little deeper at the source, because taking away the pain doesn't take away the problem. And conversely, just because somebody happens to be having a good run financially or as far as popularity goes or they have some temporary security or peace of mind, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're dialed in spiritually either. But it's so easy to fall into that trap, seeing that God... If God, if I'm really tight with God, he's going to find me a good parking space at the mall. (laughs) Maybe I need the exercise. (laughs) Maybe he's trying to get me to walk a little more because that's good for me. Never thought of that. (laughs) I love the people that always fight for the best parking spot at the gym. (laughs) Ever see the irony of that? (laughs) i got to get closer to that door. (laughs) Um, So... The next point that I really like, too, it fits in with that. It says we each need to run our own race. Christianity is not a competition. See, it's so easy to fall into that trap, too, especially when there's pain involved, to start looking at other people, to start comparing us and them. But the problem when we compare ourselves to others is we're comparing our insides to their outsides. And they always seem to look better than I feel. (laughs) And how can we really make accurate comparisons? And the good news is the Bible teaches us that we not only don't need to do that, we're not supposed to do it. See, it's easy to probably easier to illustrate this using a business, business management example. Because W. Edwards Deming is a genius of business. He was a guy that invented continuous improvement, and I could give you five hours on that guy. I love him. And uh, But like I think I mentioned one time how he did this illustration in other countries to demonstrate to Americans how we are bred for competition in America. 
other countries raise their kids with a spirit of cooperation. He did this one uh, object lesson one time, and he had all these top executives of American corporations gathered in this room. And he drew a line on the floor and had these people face off against each other. And we're talking CEOs and COOs and CFOs and a lot of O's in there. And, and he had them line up against each other. And he said, With, without resulting in physical violence, get the guy opposite of you to cross the line. And these things would go on all night. They would bribe each other, offer big wads of cash. They'd threaten each other. They, you know, they couldn't drag the other guy over, but they'd lie to him and con him and trick him. And and nobody in America ever crossed the line. And then he said, "You know how long that exercise takes in Japan? Thirty seconds, less than thirty seconds. Because I tell them the instructions, they look at the guy opposite and say, i 'I'll cross if you will.'" And they agree on it, and they both cross. (laughs) Never thought of that. (laughs) Why? Competition, not cooperation. Because cooperation is win-win. Competition is win-lose. Competition isn't bad, but competition does breed losers as well as winners. You can't have a winner without a loser, right? Everybody knows that. But when we approach Christianity as a competitive sport instead of a cooperative sport, when we see it as win-lose, when we run businesses like that, what are, one of the mistakes that Deming says that they make in American business is they make your competition your coworker. They gauge you according to how much your, your, the guy next to you produced. Well, you know, he did 100 units and you only did 98, so we're going to give him a raise and you're not getting a raise because he did more than you. Yeah, but there's reasons for that. Maybe he's been doing it longer or better equipment you gave him or whatever. But you see, a healthy, and then what do you do? Well, that results in worst cases in sabotage. I got to slow him down. (laughs) I have to hobble that guy so he doesn't get ahead of me. But in a cooperative environment, they put they pit you against yourself. Well, last month you did 96. This month you did 98. You improved. We're going to reward you based on your personal improvement. See, if I join Weight Watchers, it doesn't matter if the person in the chair next to me ate three dozen donuts on their way into the meeting. <laughs> that doesn't affect me. <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're going to go out and you know, to a smorgasbord afterward. That doesn't affect me. I'm there for me. And as long as I do what I'm supposed to do, I will improve, and that's what I'm there for anyway. And so the Bible says we need to pit ourselves against ourselves, not against others. And the more that I can keep that in mind, the more that I can keep running my own race and not be so affected by other people's. The next one is a biggie. It says, in our human weakness is where we find God's strength and comfort. I love the words of Paul when he talks about how he had this affliction. And I'm glad he didn't tell us what his affliction was, because we can all relate to an affliction, a thorn in the flesh, he called it, a messenger of Satan that buffeted him. Now, we all have our cross to bear. 
And the cross to Christ was supposed to be an instrument of death. In God's hands, it became an instrument of life, not only for him, but for everyone. And in the same way that cross that we bear that was supposed to be a source not only of our own death, but of our own humiliation, of our own suffering, in God's hands can be turned into a blessing for us or for others. And the more that we get our heads around that, like Paul said, he had this affliction. He said three times I cried out to God to have it removed. And the answer he always got was, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I thought, wow. And then Paul concluded that when I am weak, then I am strong. Because it's in our weakness. See, strength breeds what? Independence. If I'm strong, you know, that doesn't build my faith. If I'm really strong and I've got it together and have everything I need, who needs God? (laughs) Who needs you? I need nothing. But when we're weak, it breeds two things, dependence and interdependence. The strongest joints in carpentry are tongue and groove. And that's what a church is built of. People with strengths and weaknesses coming together as one, fitting together. If you're strong where I'm weak and I'm weak where you're, and, and you're weak where I'm strong, we can become interdependent. So thank God for our human weakness. Because that's the very thing that keeps us dependent on God and dependent on each other. And that's a good thing. The next one, and I think this to me personally is the biggest point of all. There is perfect justice. God will balance the scales, just not today. (laughs) I think the first words out of my mouth when I was a kid was, it's not fair. Even Stephen, everything's got to balance out. It wasn't good enough that my mom gave my brother and I M&Ms. Now we have to count (laughs) to see who got more. Because everything needs to be fair. I think the root of every resentment I ever had started with an injustice. It's not fair. When those scales of justice are tipped against me or against people I love, I don't have a place to file that, and I go ballistic. I go vigilante (laughs) because I can't handle unfairness. And that, again, is the type of suffering, the suffering of injustice. That's why in our passage today it's so apropos that Peter quotes the Psalms because that is the go-to book when we're in pain. You know, you want to talk about somebody that got a raw deal. (laughs) Let's look at David and look at all of his inner angst because of the stuff that was done to him unfairly. But Christ suffered the same fate. You know, talk about being wrongly accused, falsely accused, betrayed by your friends, abandoned by your family. Talk about uh, being punished when you didn't do anything wrong. Talk about being abandoned at your time of greatest need. Talk about the humiliation of being blamed for things you did not do. People hating you for saying things you did not say. I mean, he's the poster child, literally, 
of unfairness. But you see, I can't live in a world with no justice. I have learned to live in a world of delayed justice. (laughs) But I do take great comfort in the fact that God is not sleeping at the switch. We live in the age of grace. God has suspended his judgment because he wants a maximum number of people to be saved. There will come a day when that door closes and a new one opens, and that will usher in a new age, the age of judgment. We want to be on the right side of that door. We want as many people as possible to be on the right side of that door. Our job as Christians is to turn them, not to burn them. And that's why God, in his mercy, is allowing this mess to continue for a while. But rest assured, there will come a day when those scales get balanced. And I can live with that. But I can't file it any other way. And I'm glad that that we have that hope in the future. The next point, it says, we all gave up the things we cannot keep to gain things we cannot lose. I remember this lament I did to one of my early spiritual advisors, a guy by the name of Father Rock. It's a great name for a spiritual advisor, Father Rock. And uh, and I'm listing all of the things that I had to give up. Oh, it's not fair. <laughs> you know, I had to give up booze, and I gave up drugs, and I gave up selling the drugs, so my income took a hit, and, you know, gave up porno, and I gave up this and that, you know, and fighting and robbing people. <laughs> oh, poor me. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, Rock, being Rock, was very sympathetic to my appeals, and he, he looks at me and goes, which one of those things would you like back? <laughs> well, when you put it that way, <laughs> he says, what have you given up? And you see, really, and even if the good things in life are given up, what have you really lost? in comparison to what we've gained. The Bible says those who cling to their life will lose it, but those who give it up for my sake will gain life eternal. See, we're giving up things we can't keep to gain things we can't lose. That's a good deal. (laughs) The money we lose, the money we give away in this life compared to the treasures we have in heaven, they pale in comparison. The time we give up on this earth in order to gain eternal time, that's a good deal. The things we count as sacrifices, like Paul said, they're dirty, filthy rags compared to the riches that he's been given in return. And we have to remember on balance, this temporary short-term suffering that we're doing pales in comparison to the forever relief of pain that we have to look forward in heaven. And that's why the last point is to keep our eyes on the prize. Heaven is in front of us. One of the foundational teachings of this ministry, heaven is in front of us. And knowing that and understanding the now versus then, to take that broad angle view and always be mindful, this ends well. 
I like sometimes reading the last page of a book to see if it has a happy ending. I'm not going to read the rest of it if the ending's crappy. <laughs> I'm not going to waste my time. But when I read the Bible, I read the last page. I, I, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, the good guys win. <laughs> it's a happy ending. The right people win. And you see, knowing that, we can endure the rest of this. We used the example one time. Living in this world is kind of like the difference between watching a big game like a Super Bowl, let's say live, versus watching it after the fact on tape, knowing that your team won. Now, if you know your team won and you're just reviewing the film of a game that already happened, you don't sweat it so much if your guy drops the ball within the five-yard line or the quarterback fumbles. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's no big deal, right? Because you know they win in the end. If you don't know they're going to win, you're livid, especially if you got some money riding on that <laughs> or bet with some guy you don't like. <laughs> not going to shave my head because he dropped the ball. <laughs> Whatever the bet is, but but you see, we already know we're winning. We already know we've won. So we don't have to sweat the small stuff anymore. And knowing that heaven's in front of us, that leads us to one of the biggest blessings that we get to enjoy again today, because this is another Communion Sunday. And one of the points that I love to make today as we approach Communion is just simply to remember Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's a relationship, a personal relationship with God through Christ. Life is a relationship. It's all about who we know and who we love and who loves us and who we help and who helps us and who we're with and who's with us. Heaven is a relationship. It's life eternal with God in heaven, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, and with each other. One of the things that survives the grave is relationships. We will know each other in heaven forever together. The people we love in this life will be with again in the next, even those that go on before. That's the hope of heaven. And that's the point of communion. Because Christ talks about we will have communion in heaven. When we think of it today as a family dinner. Now, that doesn't conjure very good feelings for some of us. <laughs> like, oh, family dinner, no. But a healthy family dinner. <laughs> a happy family dinner. And that's what communion is. It's where we come together and break bread to, as a family here in anticipation of the big meal in heaven when we can break bread there. So with that, we're going to do communion, and then we'll be done. We'll close. Thanks. Lord, you know that sometimes life is hard, and sometimes that road is long, and sometimes it just hurts. But, Lord, you are the God of comfort and the God of peace, and we thank you for comforting 
us in those times of trial and temptation and comforting us sometimes, Lord, when when life is hard. And we just pray for your continued peace. And if we are to suffer, Lord, help us to suffer for doing right. And help us always, Lord, to keep our eyes on the prize and move forward ever closer towards you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.